I've been sitting on this conversation for months, but I knew that the eve of 9-11 was the right time to share a glimpse into how author Marissa Renee Lee sees grief and how her book Grief is Love is a depiction of the different versions of grief. For all those who are hurting or who are supporting those who are hurting, this conversation is for you. I'm Vivian, this is Happy to Be Here, and here's my conversation with Marissa. I am so excited to be here on another episode of Happy to Be Here, and this time with very good friend Marissa, who, by the way, your book is right here, right next to me. Uh, and I want you to introduce yourself because I think you'll do an amazing job of saying all the different things that you are currently <laughs> being joyfully filled with. Well, thank you for having me. I am happy to be here um, and grateful for an opportunity to connect with you. You know, I've shared this with you before. I just, I feel like there aren't a lot of diverse voices in the grief space. So whenever I have an opportunity to talk to you, I'm always happy to be doing it. Um, in terms of my background, I am a writer, speaker, and entrepreneur. I'm an alumni of the Obama administration and spent some time in the White House and also running a nonprofit on behalf of the Obamas that's now a part of the Obama Foundation. Um, in my consulting practice, I mostly support organizations that are focused on racial equity issues. So that is that is kind of my bread and butter day job. And then on the side, which feels really <laughs> weird to say. I've been active in the grief space, writing, commenting, and most recently putting a book out called Grief is Love yes. that I hope you will go purchase as soon as possible. I will put all of the important links in the show notes, but let's start there, right? And we'll work our way back because I feel like there's so much <laughs> wonderfulness that we can unpack. But how is the process of writing a book that is such a testament to grief, such a testament to love and to your own experiences of adulthood, right? I think that that's a really big yeah. part that sometimes we lose track of is how much, no matter your age, grief propels you into a different stage of adulthood that I think yes. only grief can propel you into. Yes, 100%. So putting this book together was really hard. Um, you know, I, I realized early on and I knew going into it that it was mm -hmm. going to be hard because there's no way there's no way to separate yourself fully from the pain of your story and you know unfortunately my story is a painful one and I I knew that writing this book was was going to be deeply emotional and triggering for me and would probably bring up things that I thought I was okay with or things that, you know, mm -hmm. I thought I had moved past and I actually hadn't. And, and like, so I knew that going into it, but it still was really hard, even with that knowledge. And ultimately what I ended up deciding a friend of mine, when I was just, you know, deep in the early days of writing mm -hmm. and editing this book, I was telling her how much I was struggling. You know, I was crying all the time, waking up in the middle of the night with random lines or thoughts that mm -hmm. I need to immediately write down to make sure I didn't lose them. Just the grind of it while working full time, while also being in the midst of an adoption process. And she said to me, things that are really hard have an opportunity to transform us and we get to decide what that transformation looks like. And so at that point, I committed to to making sure that the process of writing this book made me 
a better person, um, a healthier person in terms of my mental and emotional health, Mm -hmm. and that it made me, you know, frankly, even closer to my mom than I was before I started. So it like, it was, it's deeply challenging. And I will just say to anyone who's out there that as hard as it was, I would absolutely do it all over again. Because I think when you get to the other side and you have, you have thoughtfully been forced to really intentionally process your pain and the hard things that have happened to you and then turn them into something that is hopefully useful for someone else. Like it is ultimately a positive transformation, no matter how challenging it is. So if you're listening and, and you know, you have a story that you feel like you need to share, I hope that you'll find a way to share it and know that in my case, I officially spent less than two years working on this book, Mm -hmm. but unofficially it started six months after my mom died almost 14 years ago. Is it something that you were very intentional about throughout the process of baking in how you were going to take care of yourself? Because I mean, from that perspective, yeah, having to write and go into the stores in the past, like you said, no matter how much you think that you've dealt process put them in a little box that's like nicely put down. Once you start writing them again, it's like it puts you back into that space. And yeah, now you're 100%. rivaling like all these different versions of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, I, so I started writing this book uh, about a year after my husband and I lost a much wanted pregnancy and that pregnancy loss and an underlying health condition that I have had actually made me really sick. So I wrote a lot of this book with these crushing migraines that they couldn't figure out, with episodes of unexplained bleeding, with insomnia, Mm -hmm. with all of these things that they couldn't get under control. So I had to find a way to prioritize my care and my health while putting this book together because my, my body just really needed that. Um, and so what I, what I did was, and I don't know if I could find them right now, but I actually wrote out some rules for writing my book, uh, because as I saw how emotional getting some of these things out of my mind and, and, you know, onto paper became, I realized I needed to be even more intentional than I already was. And so my rules included things like, you know, no writing after a certain time, because once my brain is in that space, I can't turn it off and go to sleep. And I knew that about myself. Um, One of my rules was, you know, if you're really having a hard time to reach out to, you know, one of my two best friends who knew that I was going through this and also were around when I lost my mom. Um, Another thing was a commitment to exercise. Like we got a Peloton and I made myself ride that bike all the time. You know, like when it was when, when I was just feeling really just sad and frankly, mostly feeling sad for my younger self and the things that I went through when I wasn't emotionally ready for them and were like emotionally mature enough to deal with them, I would just get on the bike. Um, I also committed to meditation. I decided that I couldn't work on my book every single day. That was another big rule of mine. I knew that I needed breaks. And I wrote down, I wrote a subject line to an email to myself and marked it as unread in my inbox so that every time I checked my email, I would see it. And it said, writing requires restoration. Because like, I, I just, I couldn't grind at it the way that I could grind at other things in my professional career. And, and it was definitely, 
it was definitely an adjustment, but it left me thinking differently about work and about care. You know, I think we are all capable of accomplishing so much more when we are intentional about taking care of ourselves. I just want to pause for just how amazing that is. And I think we, you mentioned before, right? There are not many diverse people of color in the grief space. No. And I think it coming up in it the last few years, it had, I mean, in any space really, rest isn't something that is seen as a need but it's also something that is taken such advantage of by others, right? Where it's just like, oh, that's just a given. But like for people of color, like when you grow up in certain environments, like rest is a privilege that a lot of people can't afford. 100%. And so having to reteach yourself that through the process of something so wildly beautiful that you're creating is double hard, right? Because you're having to like understand this and at the same time apply it and at the same time keep yourself accountable for it. Yeah, it was not it was not easy, um, but I did have the accountability part is so important. Mm-hmm. I did have a team of a couple of close girlfriends. I think there's like five of them on this uh, WhatsApp chain that I started. That is like the grief is love chain. It was originally Marissa's writing a book, um, <laughs> and they were very diligent about checking in. You know, how was it going? How was I feeling? And one of them is a medical doctor, and one of my other best friends is actually a therapist. So I got a lot of really great support. A good group of people. <laughs> yeah. And like, I think, I think for people, people, and I'll, I'll say like us broadly, you know, like I grew up what my husband and I like to call layaway poor, you know, like not so poor that you wondered where the next meal was going to come from, but poor enough that layaway was something that you remember from your childhood and you knew your parents didn't have much money. And, you know, my mom first got sick when I was 13. So I became a child caretaker at a pretty young age. And, you know, my dad was around, but he also worked full time. I have a younger sister who's struggled with mental illness. Like it was, it was all a lot always and rest and self-care. They weren't things that were prioritized, not because my parents didn't want to teach us those things, but they were just things that to your point, we like didn't have time for, you know, like we were a family of four that was pretty much constantly struggling because of my mom's health and how that impacted, you know, our family finances and and what we could and couldn't do. And so for me, self-care, frankly, you know, growing up, it felt like a thing that we say in the black community sometimes, like that's for white people, like that's a white people thing. Like it never felt like something that was for me. And when I was doing the research for this book, I found a journal entry uh, from my early 20s, you know, at that point, my mom had already been diagnosed with breast cancer on top of her multiple sclerosis. And I wrote, I think that anything that you do for yourself that you could instead do for someone else is selfish. How horrendous is that? You know, like I cried for that 22, 23, 24 year old so many times these last few years. Uh, And one of my big priorities now as a new mom is to model care for my child. You know, like I want my kid to grow up knowing that he is worth whatever care he needs, no matter what society might say instead. And so beautiful. And, And you mentioned as well that it helped reframe your relationship with your mom and strengthen that. And I think that is something that 
is so heartening, particularly when you've lost someone after a very long time. My mom has been passed for 19 years now. And it is, I think one of the better parts of grief is realizing that even though she has been gone, our relationship still morphs and grows, even if she's not physically here. And that's such something that I hope whoever is listening, if you are grieving and you're at the beginning of it or a hundred years into it, that you find those sweet moments of realizing like, oh, wow, this relationship has morphed. How did that yeah. happen for you through this process? So I think a big thing for me um, is, you know, when I went into writing this book, I I knew that I still loved my mother and I believed that she still loved me. And I, I needed to figure out for the sake of this book and for the sake of myself, like what, what does that really mean? What does that really look like? You know, how does that love live on? And when I, when I was working on this book, um, my, my husband who can sometimes be a little bit of a smart ass, uh, <laughs> said, and, but this was actually really helpful. You'll appreciate this. He said, what makes you a grief expert? Like, why should people buy this book? Why should they listen to you instead of somebody else who's lost a parent? I said, you know what? That's a really great point. I don't want to be known as a grief expert. I want to be known as a grief advocate. And that means I need to understand the true expertise around grief. So I partnered with a professor at Harvard who's a bereavement researcher and expert on grief who also lost a parent at a young age and dealt with some of the other forms of grief that I have dealt with. And she shared that, you know, this, this idea that I had that our love could continue, you know, that I could still have an active relationship with a dead woman, that it's grounded in the leading research on grief and loss. And there's this theory called the continuing bonds theory, which basically states that the healthiest way for you and for me to deal with the loss of our moms is to find a way to continue that relationship. And so for me, it comes up in, it comes up a lot in how I treat myself. Um, it also comes up a lot in, you know, how I raise my son. And it's the little things like my mom always made pancakes on Sundays before church. You know, as long as she was having a healthy enough day, she'd be in the kitchen making us pancakes before we'd have to get ready for church on Sundays. And so we kicked off pub week by giving Bennett like his first little pieces of pancakes and, and you know, doing that that Sunday. Um, my mom was a very religious person and we're doing Bennett's baptism uh, this weekend and there will be elements of her in that. And so, you know, I, I do the things that I can to continue to keep her alive because I know, I know that she's still meant to be a part of our life. And the other thing that I'll add, and this was this was a really hard thing to come to terms with, as an adult looking back at my childhood and adolescence and early adulthood when my mom was so sick and having to like analyze it and really go deep into the things that happened to her in order to write this book, I realized that there's so much that I don't know, particularly so much that I don't know about how she suffered because she never shared any of it. And simply recognizing that, I feel like changed my relationship with her because I now see her as a more complete person, if that makes sense. 100%. Um, 
So yeah, there's been a lot of processing over here. I, f- I think finding, going through the journey of figuring out whether your parents are alive or, or not, that they are adults and humans is one of the most interesting dynamic yeah, shifts ever. And especially when they've passed and they can't answer some of these big questions. But I thought I had a lot of those moments as well. And there's just, there's something so healing about that as well. It gives you this permission to see them as the beings that they, that they have been. And agreed. I think that journey is very much demonstrated as well. Like in, in your version in your story with her, right? Not just her story, but in the way that you've navigated through your grief and and now how you're raising your son, which is such a beautiful kind of full circle. Yeah, and it's it's been it's been really fascinating to think about and to process. You know, my mom first got sick when she was 37. Mm-hmm. I'm 39. And so having passed that age and, you know, thankfully still being blessed with good health, it has made me completely think about my mom at that age in a different way. You know, like I cannot imagine being in your thirties and being diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and, you know, in and out of a wheelchair in and out of hospitals for the rest of your life. Like I truly, I like, I can't, I can't even wrap my mind around it, but it, it does make me see her differently. Um, It does definitely cast a different light on our relationship. And it, frankly, it makes me even more cognizant of the sacrifices that both of my parents made to try and shield my sister and I from all of that as much as possible. How's motherhood? I was going to have a deep question, but really I feel like how's motherhood will be the perfect just segue into that whole conversation. <gasps> oh, I love it so much. Um, I, I have never in my life felt so content. You know, I believed in my bones that I was meant to be a mom And then to have it finally come true and to have this baby who feels so perfect for the two of us, who we adopted, you know, for folks who are listening, it, it's just the most perfect thing ever. And I'm so grateful and I love it, but I just want to tell anyone who's listening, who's like, oh, I had a really tough, you know, first few months with my kid. Like motherhood is also really hard. Like being a new parent is really challenging and in our case, our son showed up with 24 hours notice and we had nothing, like not a diaper, not a crib, not car seat. Mm-hmm. We had literally nothing and had to get ourselves in the middle of a pandemic to another state, set up in an Airbnb somewhere, completely isolated from family and friends on our own and receive you know, a newborn oh two-day-old baby. And it was just, I mean, it was amazing, but it was also so emotional, you know, for both of us, we wanted my mom there and exhausting and challenging. Oh, and because he only showed up with 24 hours notice, that meant I had, as someone who owns her own business, I had no plan set for any sort of maternity leave, time off. And my book was due in two weeks. So it was, it was incredibly stressful and overwhelming. I truly don't know how some of the words in that book like made it. I, I don't know how they showed up. I don't know where they came from. I'd like to think that they were inspired by both, you know, Bennett's arrival and my mom. Um, because yeah, it makes it makes no sense. The fact that I was able to get that book done and that it's out in the world now is nothing short of a miracle. I feel like those moments of oh my God, something is happening. I'm so I was so used to them. Not as much now, but I was so used to them coming at the forefront of bad news 
of, oh my God, something is changing mm. very instantly. And usually it, because my mom yeah, passed when oh. I was 10 and my grandma when I was 21, she had was sick a little bit before that. It was like, oh, that sh- other shoe dropping always felt like it was a bad oh, shoe. Oh, girl. And, mm. But this is a moment where I feel like it helps redefine what the other shoe dropping is because it dropped, but it was beautiful. Oh my gosh. The other shoe dropping. So the one thing that didn't make it into the book that I will either write a long essay about, or, you know, maybe it will become its own book, but the learning how to live in the midst of a loss and like, how do you maintain your sense of hope? Because I had a lot of similar, you know, like the emergency call when you're at college and you know, your sister has had a nervous breakdown or the emergency call when you're at a friend's house and mom's going to the hospital again, you know, like Mm -hmm. that expectation of, of loss, of grief, of something bad happening. Like it is really hard to, to balance, um, all of that. You know, I even, I experienced some of that, uh, both my husband and my son, when he was two months old, they both had COVID. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, of course, I was convinced that, you know, there must be something in his health history that means he's going to get so sick and have to go to the hospital, you know, like, and it's just, you spiral. And it's, it's unfortunate because like for folks like you and me, like our kind of spiraling in those moments and, and, ex- and the expectation of bad news, like it's grounded in reality. Right. You know, like it's not like, it's not like something we've completely fabricated. It's grounded in the experiences that we've had so far in life. And that's really hard. So I feel like every day I am learning to let go of that more and more. So the title of the podcast is Happy to Be Here. Um, And we talk about other things that are really hard that made to be here, right? Like grief, mental health, all the things that come with that. But I named it this because I feel like the only reason we work through that stuff is so that we can feel happy to be here. Yes. Right. And so I invite people on that can kind of exemplify that. And I think that this is a perfect example of navigating through the really hard patches of your own history, your story, your story with your mom, and then kind of feeling this sense of like, wow, I'm just really happy I'm here with yeah. your husband, with your baby. Yes. And like, how do you settle into those feelings and quiet the the scariness and the guilt and the other things that surface, especially at the heels of a book that was so centered on grief as well, where yeah. like everything is coming to the top so I think for me, one of the things that's been really helpful is my mindfulness practice. Mm-hmm. I still don't think I'm very good at it, but that's why they call it a practice, apparently. Um, I try, especially when things are really hard and really intense, to get a meditation in every day. Even if it's only five minutes, 10 minutes, usually, frankly, not much more than 10 minutes because I still can't sit still for very long. <laughs> um, but I, I try really hard to be present so that when that fear of the other shoe dropping starts to come up, I can catch it before the spiraling uh, sets in. Um, because I can, I mean, especially as a writer, like I can come mm-hmm. up with all sorts of crazy scenarios in my head. That doesn't mean any of them are actually mm-hmm. gonna happen. And so <laughs> before I start writing the first nightmare scenario, I find that if I am more present, it's easier to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, girl, where are you going with that? Like, what? Mm-hmm. Like, like, let's stay grounded in the reality of the present moment, not focus on all of the, you know, horrible things that have happened to you in the past. Um, that has helped me. But like, it's not it's it's not perfect because, you know, I 
I will never forget in 2020, you know, at the height of the pandemic, my biggest concern was that I was going to lose one of my grandparents and that I wouldn't see them again. Um, and you know, they're in their nineties right now, they're 98 and 100. And so it was a totally reasonable concern. You know, my grandfather's in a nursing home in New York state. Like it's all totally reasonable. Um, I did get to see them again, summer of 2020. And I felt like, okay, I'm okay. Like I'm good. You know, like I saw that, like, we're going to be okay. Like we're going to get through this. And then I got a call in October that my 35 year old cousin had died from COVID-19. And, and like when you have those moments, it unfortunately reinforces this sense that there's always something bad coming. And so I think we have to be really intentional about not letting that take over. Um, cause it's hard. And trying to spot the glimmers too, right? Yeah. I think we're so easy to spot the, the really hard moments cause they pop up and that's it's life. life, right? <laughs> but at the same point, life is also, you know, every smile you get from your baby yep. or every new thing he does every day. And I just think that we, our sensitivity, because we've gone through so much hard thing, this collectively, anyone listening, I'm sure it applies to your life too. Um, we've gone through so many hard things that it's like, you have to really exercise that muscle and strengthen yeah. that practice of spotting the really good parts so that you yeah. have something to hold on to. I also think, I don't know if you do this as well, but mm -hmm. I feel like I feel like because of what I've gone through with my mom and also with our pregnancy loss, that mm -hmm. whatever comes next, like, because there's going to be more hardship, there's going to be more grief, that's just life. I hope that I'm better equipped to handle it. Like that, like mm -hmm. I, that is also something that I hold on to. Um, and that, that helps me kind of navigate all of that. You learn to trust that the past versions of you have equipped the present version of you to figure out whatever the future version of you needs to deal with. Exactly. Exactly. That's a perfect way of because saying it. Because that's all you can possibly do. And yep. I think on that heel too, like if, if there is someone listening who is at the door of a grief experience right now, yep. what's something that you feel the last two years has taught you as being like the one thing I would want to tell someone who is navigating grief right now? The one thing I would want to tell someone is be patient. Um, you know, I don't know about you, but anytime I feel quote bad, uh, mm -hmm. sad, griefy, anxious, whatever, I griefy, want to be over. I love that word. <laughs> You know exactly what I mean, too, right? Yeah. Um, I want it to be over as soon as possible. And what I have learned, and I know you interviewed um, Dr. Dorothy Hollinger um, a bit about yes. this as well a while back. But like when you are in your feelings in that kind of a way, the most important thing you can do is just be with those feelings, name those feelings, stay present, and be patient. Because I have learned, and I'm sure you have as well, the sooner we accept and name emotions that are more challenging and feelings that are harder to process, the sooner they go away and move through us. So while it's really hard and, you know, it's, it's just so uncomfortable, like even for me at this point to like just sit with those icky feelings, like it is normal, it is human. And the sooner you can wrap your head around sitting with them and naming them, the sooner you will actually start to feel better. 
And it's biologically natural to feel grief. Dr. Dorothy Hollinger is the author of The Anatomy of Grief, which I think is one of my favorite books on grief because it is probably the best scientific research-based breakdown on like, you don't grieve because you're unique, you grieve because you are like everyone else. Because you're a human being. When she gets into that grief that animals experience, like I- That was my mind mind blown. Mind blown. Yes, exactly, exactly. So I think for people who are going through it, yes, your grief is unique because it's about you and your person, but so much, and this came up over and over again in the research that we did for Grief is Love, so much of how you feel and how your body responds and the different things that are happening to you are universal. And I think knowing that, or I hope knowing that can take away some of the shame that I think a lot of people experience when they're grieving and they're not quote unquote over it in six months, a year, two years, whatever. You said earlier too that you want to be known as a grief advocate, which is something I very much subscribe to um, because I am not a grief expert. I think Dr. Dorothy Hollinger is an expert. I think other people who like research this for a living are. But from an advocate's perspective, what are some other resources that you would, obviously your book is going to be top of that list for (laughs) all the show notes, I promise, but also other things that you feel are, relevant or helpful for anyone who's navigating grief, any other mental health, um, yeah. life. Yeah. <laughs> life life. It's, all, it's all a lot. It's all a lot. So I would say, I'm going to give you a couple things. So first of all, I am a big supporter of therapy. Um, and I didn't, I don't think I ended up writing it this way in the book, but I have found that a lot of people, particularly, you know, people of color, are averse to therapy because it feels like this deep long-term commitment. You know, you'll hear people say things like, oh my God, getting a therapist, that's like finding a spouse. And I want people to reframe that as you're not looking for a life partner. You're more looking for a one night stand or someone you might just sleep with a couple of times. And I realize Mm -hmm. that is incredibly crass. So let me explain. At the end of the day, therapy is about having another person who has the right skills and expertise to guide you through whatever challenge you're dealing with. They don't have to be your best friend. They don't have to be someone who, frankly, who you even love talking to as long as they are good at their job and give you the tools that you need to cope with whatever it is you're you know, facing right now. And mm-hmm. so if you are clear about what you wanna get out of therapy, and what your, you know, kind of boundaries are for a therapeutic relationship, you can find many people to work with. It doesn't have to be like this, this perfect match between you and a therapist. It's really just about getting the help that you need. So like, that's, that's one thing that I am just a big proponent of because it's made such a difference in my life over the years, you know, different times that I've accessed therapy to help me cope with grief. I would also say, This was not handled well in my case, but I think for some people, medication can be very helpful. It is not something I am an expert on, but it is something else that I do believe in and that I do think can help when you're, you know, sort of trying to figure out how to heal from something that's very challenging. Um, I have found having community support to be critical. Uh, You know, I mentioned my girlfriends from the book chain. I had 
a similar chain. It may have even been the same chain. I don't remember anymore uh, when we were going through IVF so that then when we had our pregnancy loss, I only had to send one text and they were just able to manage the response. And these people were also there when, you know, the best thing ever happened and we found out we were going to have a baby in 20 hours and they were the people who got the Airbnb and the infant car seat and the formula and the diapers and all of the things together for us. And so I think therapy, community support, and then just making sure, and this is a very hard thing to do in our culture because we are so committed to capitalism and productivity, but making sure that you carve out some space to just check in with yourself. You know, if if you're dealing with something challenging like a loss, even if it's 10, 15 minutes a day to just say like, sit down and ask, like, how am I feeling? How am I doing? What do I need? I do a daily check-in with Marissa every night when I get into bed. Like, what am I feeling? What am I worried about? And what am I grateful for are my three questions. Because I find that if I can get, like, if I can get clear on what I'm feeling, if I get clear on the things that I'm worried about or that are stressing me out, they won't have as great an impact on whether or not I get a good night's sleep. Um, so leaving room to just check in and and see what you need, because I find, and I'm sure you found too with grief, it changes every day. You know, one day you might just want to Netflix and chill and cry your eyes out over this is us. Another day you might need nature and fresh air. Another day might be exercise. Like every day is different. So I think leaving room to really check in on your mental and emotional health is really important. You hit so many great points. And <laughs> that check-in is not something that, and we, I think this has been the theme of the conversation, but in certain communities, you're not taught to check in with yourself. You're taught to check in with everyone else first yeah. and then figure yourself out. And it's, you're taught to it's be one a caretaker. of my big habits. Yeah. yeah. And being a caretaker is so taxing. And you don't tend to realize that you're not taking care of yourself until a lot deeper into, oh my gosh, I've only been taking care of someone else. Yep. And then it's a little bit of an identity crisis, but it is something you can work yourself through. Um, But those resources are so helpful and everything that we've mentioned today, we'll put in the show notes and just include as a point of reference, like we said, grief is such a unique experience, but it's also a universal one in that there is community in someone's eyes the minute you mention, hey, I lost my mom. You can see it across oh. them. You know, it's like instant. Like that, I, I feel like that's, that's like safe. the foundation of our relationship, yeah, which is like literally. sad, but you know, as people who haven't met in person, but just instantly were like, oh yeah, let's, let's be friends. Like you're cool. I'm cool. You know, like I get it. it was, it was, it was immediate. It was immediate. So I hope that whoever's listening, you felt like you were the third person in this coffee date because <laughs> it really was that instant with us. And I hope you feel us seen here too. Marissa, where can people find you on the internet? Where's the book sold? Yes. I'll put yes. all the links. Um, the book is actually sold wherever books are sold. Barnes & Noble, Target, obviously Amazon, Bookshop, if you prefer to support your independent bookstores, which we are all about. You can yes. find me online. I'm at marissarenaylee.com, and I am Marissa Renee Lee on all social platforms. So you can head over there, sign up for my newsletter, follow me on Instagram, and get all of the grief is love updates um but yeah this was this is great and and we are going to meet in person one of we these days to. it needs to yes, happen like we're gonna have like drinks and we're gonna have a fantastic time it's gonna be great it'll be amazing thank you so much marissa
Wonderful, thank you. Grief is a weird thing and it never ceases to surprise us. I hope you found some comfort in this conversation. As a reminder, you can read through our show notes on vivnunez.com. And if you can, rate, review, or share Happy to Be Here with a friend. It can go a long way as we continue to build up the community. I'll catch you next Thursday with a new conversation.